Beard, and we are starting a new series on John, which I'm really excited about. And uh, I have a question, which I want to ask you as we get started with John this morning. And the question is this. What would it be like if you truly believed in Jesus? I mean really believed in everything he said, everything he did, everything that he was. What if he truly right there with you and was coming through for you? What would that be like? How about when the bills are coming in and there's no way you know how the money is going to come in for those bills, but you just knew and trusted and believed that God would be your provider? What would that be like? How about if you could truly believe that you could trust God completely with everything that's dear to you? With your life, with your health, with your family, with your children even, that you could just trust him 100% yeah. in this yeah. case. What if you truly believe that God will prepare a place for you in heaven? Yeah. That it's assured where you're going to be that if you die tomorrow or 40 years from now, it doesn't matter to you because you're going to be with Jesus. What if we truly believe all this, church? Yeah. What if we truly believe it? What kind of freedom and peace and joy and abandon in Jesus could we live in if truly we were settled, completely settled in our faith that all that is true. And I know many of you are saying, well, aren't we all Christians? Don't we all believe that? And of course, yes, many of us are Christians. We believe that. We have confessed it. Some are going to confess it in their baptism this afternoon. So of course, yes, we believe it. But also, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you realize that oftentimes our faith is just a little bit selective. Don't you agree? Particularly depending on the circumstance. I mean, when you wake up in the morning and it's a beautiful day and the sun is shining and you got your coffee and the kids run in and give you a hug and say, I love you, Mom, I love you, Dad, and they run out. And you're like, yes, Jesus is on the throne. Of course. God is real. His blessings are good. But it's a little different, isn't it, when everything's falling apart? Yes. And when things are not going well, when we're desperately lonely or sad. Or when we're about to lose our job or something terrible is happening in our families or our kids are off the rails. Do we still believe that God is good and he loves us and is for us? And this is when the holes in our faith show up, right? As in those moments, the little holes that are there. Um, we begin to realize that we're struggling with believing in him. And so we start to say or maybe just think things like, where's God? He must not love me. He must have abandoned me just like everyone else. Why does he let things happen to me? Why does he let all these things bad things happen? And then, and then the doubts start to set in, right? What if this is not real at all? What if we're just all making this up? What if we're all deluded, right? And that starts to get us into this spiral of maybe I think, no, he's real, but he just doesn't love me. But I screw things up enough that he's not for me. Maybe he's for other people, but he's not for me. Does anybody relate to what I'm talking about here? Yeah. So there was a man who lived basically over 2,000 years ago who also understood this. Uh, we're not alone. This is not new to the 21st century. Um, they were only a generation or two past the time of Jesus. They, so people saw him raised from the dead, resurrected, and yet only a generation or two later, people are still asking, is this real? Is God, is Jesus really the son of man? Did this really happen? Can we really be forgiven our sins? Is God really with us? All of that, those questions came up then as well. The growing Gentile world seemed very far indeed from a little rabbi in Jerusalem. 
And so God in his wisdom tapped on the shoulder of this man. His name is John. And he said, there's another gospel that needs to be written. By the, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God empowered this man, John, to write a new gospel. A gospel that hadn't even yet been spoken. And you might ask yourself, why another gospel? There were already three good ones. We had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those were written decades before. And they'd already been passed around the churches, and the churches read them to each other, and they were knowing those. There was a whole story of Jesus. Why another one? And the question is, the answer to that is because there was something about John's gospel that was going to be different. That he had a different thing to say through them. The three gospels, the other three gospels, are called the synoptic gospels. They were written very soon after the life of Jesus. And so they have this sense of immediacy. First of all, there's a lot of overlap between them. They, many of them probably use same sources. That's why when you read one story and one story and the other, it's almost word for word. Right? They're very similar in many cases, but they kind of address them to particular people groups. So if you study Matthew, they were really looking to the people of the Jews, really speaking to the Jews. If you look at Luke, they were really speaking to the Greeks. If you look at Mark, he may have been speaking more to the Romans. So they kind of have a different different flavor, but they all had that immediacy around them. The events just took place, and they're recording the events of Jesus for us all to know. So they're wonderful. Study your synoptic gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're amazing. But the gospel of John that we're about to study was written many years later. They believe about 70 to 90 AD. So a lot of years later, remember Jesus was probably killed around 30, 33 AD, and so that's a lot of years after that. And so there's been a lot of time to reflect on the events, on what happened in the church. John To overlay on his personal experience of walking with Jesus as a young man. And so as a result, when you read John, you know, you say to yourself, there's something different about this, but I don't know what it is. This is what it is. There's a depth of rich theology in it, behind it. It's John who says, has all the I am statements about Jesus. I am the bread of life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. He's the one that pulls those out and sees the importance of who Jesus is. It's John who starts not at the beginning of Jesus' life. He starts at creation. He says, in the beginning. He's like, I'm going to put this whole thing in context for you people. Like, we're not going to just start in this life. It's not just about Jesus' 33 years on earth. It is starting at the very beginning the word was there. And so he's, he's going to give us the whole perspective. He has such a broad perspective. It's in the book of John that, we, that almost half of the book, nine chapters, way more than any other gospel, he spends on the last three days of Jesus' life. Just those three days, his death and resurrection, he spends so much time on that life because he knows 50, 60 years later how important 
those, those three days were, that they are really the crux of everything that Jesus came to do. So, so we get this incredible, rich perspective in John. And so he, he wrote this gospel, and he also gives us a gift. He, he, he tells us exactly why he wrote it. He doesn't tell us until kind of toward the end of his gospel. And so if you go to John 20, uh, verses 30 to 31, he tells us, here's why I'm writing this book. After all these years, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. That you may believe and have life in his name. The word believe appears 98 times in John. It's a key point that John wants to get across. It's the purpose of his gospel. He wanted our faith to be so secure, so solid, that we would not doubt, that we would believe that he is truly the Son of God and died for us and has given us life. He wants us to live in that every day. And that's why he wrote this gospel. And if we're, you know, at the end of the day, we live what we believe, right? What we truly believe. So that if we are not sure, if we're always hedging our bets, if we're kind of like playing it safe, if we're doing the thing where I'll live for God, but I'll also live in such a way that if it's not true, it'll still have been a pretty good life. You might relate to that? Hedging our bets. But if we're not truly living in the faith in Jesus, then we, we don't get all that joy and peace and strength that he's telling us and promising us we can so this Gospel of John is different. It's going to build your faith. That's why he wrote it. Yeah. And it's deep and it's rich. So um, I'm excited. Are you excited? Let's talk a little bit about the person of John. Because I like us to understand the author when we get into his book. We're going to be getting into his book for many weeks after this. But let's talk about who John is. First of all, let's just be clear. He's not John the Baptist. Okay, different John. John was a popular name back then, just as it is today. And so John the Baptist, different guy, that's the cousin of Jesus. Remember, Mary and Elizabeth are cousins, and they have babies. And so John the Baptist was never one of the 12 disciples. He was a preacher and a prophet who spoke of the coming of the Lord, um, but was executed during Jesus' time on earth. So um, he, this, that's not this John. Okay, He's a great John. We can talk about him later, but um, that's not who this John is. I'm going to talk about this John. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you just a little like survey through the scriptures of his life, right? A little life story on that. So, so it's settled in. I'm going to read a lot of scriptures, but it's kind of just telling the story of this man, John, and who he is. Okay? So we're going to start with his calling. The first time our John is met is in Matthew 4 and Mark 1. They both tell a similar story when he's called to follow Jesus. Now Jesus has just called Peter and Andrew. So these are his first disciples he's calling. And it's interesting because they're all fishermen. So you get this impression that Jesus is walking along a pier or something, right? And he sees these two. He goes, all right, Peter and Andrew, you two. And now he's walking along, and now he picks up James and John. Let's read from Mark 1, 19 to 20. It says, when he, Jesus, had gone a little farther, so he just called Peter and Andrew, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So there you go. They get called by Jesus. By the way, just as another note, so you don't get people confused in the Bible, this James, the brother of John, is not the James that wrote the book of James that he studied last fall. That's, again, a different James. That's the brother. Anybody remember who the brother, uh, who James is the brother of? 
Jesus, right? So that's, he comes to faith later. He's not believing in Jesus while Jesus is on the earth. So anyway, this is a different James again. So we have James and John, two brothers. Dad's 70, and they ditched Dad. Poor Dad. Because they were fishing boats and hired guys. Um, tough, tough life. But here we go. So these four are the first four called. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're his first four disciples. All hardworking, hardy fishermen guys, okay? And they are following this rabbi for whatever reason. They just get called and they, they follow. It's interesting, right? Why they would just leave their nets to follow him. And right away, we start to hear all the stuff that starts happening. Jesus takes them with them. And in Mark 1, we have this little story. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. The, teach, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one of authority, not as the teachers of the law. Then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him, and news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So right away, these gospel, these, these disciples, including John, are getting the front row seat to see the authority and the power of Jesus. He doesn't mess around. Um, they get right to it. He's already healing and casting out demons. It goes on. They see some more incredible miracles. Uh, Mark 1, he keeps going, 20, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. So again, those first four. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. They immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on, the, on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So here it is, you know, the first couple of weeks, John is following Jesus, and he's already seen, you know, impure spirits cast out, a fever gone away, you know, speaking with authority in the synagogue, people getting healed of many different diseases, all happening right away. John is right there seeing this with those first disciples. He must have already been very wowed by the person of Jesus. However, apparently John made an impression on Jesus as well. So we get this when we go to the section in Mark where Jesus is naming all his disciples. Now by this time he's called all 12 of them, so there's others that are joining those first four. Um, and this is what Jesus says, and listen to what he says about John, okay? Jesus went up on a mountainside, called to him those he wanted, they came to him, he appointed 12, that they might be with him, that they might, he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boangers, Bonerges, actually, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Christians. He wasn't one of the twelve. And then he called, because I know they start following 
much later. Good question. So this is the first 12 apostles, uh, disciples, obviously many other disciples later, but he gives them the name Boangers, son of thunder. Which, you know, I love that Jesus gives nicknames, first of all, right? Yeah, you know, I think Jesus was a fun guy. Like, I, I mean, yeah. that's kind of fun to me. Uh, he gives them a nickname. But I'm wondering why Sons of Thunder for these two. Well, we get a little bit of an indication by a few of the stories in the Gospels. Um, Luke 9 talks about um, something that John did. It says, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. <laughs> Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. So John's acting a little bit like a son of thunder here, right? A little aggressive, a little bit like they're not with us, so we're going to stop him. Like, no, only we can do this stuff. So he's a little bit like taking charge where Jesus didn't tell him to take charge, and Jesus has to tell him, like, calm down. Uh, we're not doing that right now. Um, and, then, and then it goes on, continuing from there, Luke 9. Uh, it says this is much later now in Jesus' ministry, but we get another little touch of the sons of thunder. Where as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, here they go, saw this, they asked, Lord, let us call fire down from heaven to destroy them. <laughs> Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went on to another village. I love this. I mean, they've been with Jesus a while, right? So they've been casting out demons, they've been healing the sick, they've been doing all this stuff. So they knew there was power in their hands. And so what do they do? They're guys, right? <laughs> You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. 
And when Ted heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. This is right after Jesus came into Jerusalem, um, weeks, just a week before he's crucified. It's late in his ministry. But these bold sons of thunder still haven't figured it out yet, right? They still have the audacity and the boldness to ask to sit on his right and left. So I tell you all this to tell you that John was a work in progress. A work in progress. A son of thunder, bold, brash, and proud, rebuked by Jesus more than once. We can all maybe relate a little bit to John. But there's also a transforming work of grace going on in the life of John throughout all of this. And I want to trace that for you as well. Because what we see is that John became one of the inner circle of three of Jesus. If you look all through the scriptures, there's James, John, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John. They're kind of his closest buddies. They, they're his closest circle. He had the 12, then he had the three. And you wonder why those three? Like, did they have more faith? Did they really believe? Did he see that in them? Did he see that they were going to be leaders, and so he wanted to mentor them? I even wonder if just on a human level, Jesus really clicked with them, that they were like his people. And just like you want to have your people close to you when you want to work things, maybe Jesus really got strength from them. I don't know. Like, what is special about Peter, James, and John that they got to be in that inner circle? Let me just show you a few things that they got to be part of that the other disciples didn't. The first one is their present at the transfiguration of Jesus. What a moment. Matthew 17. Uh, one after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And here he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Incredible moment. John was also present for certain very powerful miracles that Jesus, for whatever reason, again, only wanted these three to be part of. This one is when Jairus, the synagogue leader's daughter, died. Jesus went in to pray for her. Luke 8 says this, when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he would not let anyone go in with him except who? Peter, John, and James, and the child's mother and father. And Jesus took her by the hand and said, my child get up, and her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. They got to see him raise a little girl from the dead. In Jesus' most vulnerable moment in Gethsemane, in the garden, right before he was arrested and crucified, who did he want with him? He wanted Peter, James, and John. Mark 14, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. He wanted them close by. We know they fell asleep anyway, so they were like, <laughs> But they tried. And then most, most poignantly, perhaps, when Jesus is on the cross, he looks down and he sees his mother, and he looks at John and asks her to take care of him. In John 19, when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's a reference to John, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her to his home. So he entrusted his own mother to John. You can see the rest of the story of John in the book of Acts. This man was transformed, first of all, by his time with Jesus, by walking with him. Even though, even toward the end, he was still a son of thunder, and yet God was doing a work in him. And then I've got to imagine that that work was just absolutely solidified and, and thrust forward to a new level when he saw the risen Lord. Right? Jesus died on the cross. He takes the mother, thinks it's all over, and then he sees the risen Lord. We know he was there with the disciples when Jesus appeared to them. And so now he realizes he's the risen king. 
And so everything's changed for John, just like for the other disciples. They begin to live powerfully for him. And it's very interesting. If you look at the beginning of the book of Acts, it's all Peter and John. Those two become leaders and really go out and do ministry for the Lord. And, you know, we always talk about Peter. I like Peter. Peter's fun. He's, like, crazy and wild and all this stuff. Always talking and and all that. But, I mean, John is right there. John is right there the whole time as well. The story, uh, I'll just kind of quickly go through a, a list of kind of some of the things you can see in Acts. You can just read through the first several chapters of Acts to get, get a beat on what John is up to. But they healed the lame beggar outside of the temple in Acts 4. They were tried before the Sanhedrin for preaching their faith. This is in Acts 4 as well. They were thrown into jail. In that scenario, they saw thousands of people come to faith through their witness. And here's what I love about that. I don't have a screen for this. But um, in Acts 4, when they're before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin are asking the questions, and they're defending what they're doing, here's what I love. Um, in Acts 4.13, you can look this up later, it says, this is the Sanhedrin now, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. I love that. John's just ordinary. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're with Jesus, he can take our ordinariness and do something incredible for us. Yeah. We're with Jesus. Because yeah. with Jesus. Then we know that Peter and John were flogged uh, for, for preaching the faith. They performed signs and wonders. They gathered in the early church, worshiping, praying, sharing the possessions of Acts 5. Interestingly, in Acts 8, it's Peter and John who were sent to Samaria. The Samaritans, the Samaritans had received the Lord and received the word about Jesus, but hadn't received the Holy Spirit. And so the Jerusalem church, in order to check out what's going on, said Peter and John, sent them over there. They saw that they believed. They laid hands on them to pray, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. So that was Peter and John did that. John saw his brother martyred for the faith in Acts 12, along with the rest of the disciples over the course of his whole life. John was the only disciple not to be martyred. And so he watched every disciple, one after the other, get beheaded, get crucified, get martyred for their faith. We watched them. And then in this final little tidbit from Galatians, John is called one of the pillars of the church by one other than the great apostle Paul. Galatians 2, 9, 10. I don't know if I have this up here either. But it says James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me, this is Paul speaking, me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship and recognized the grace given to me. And so here you have John, who was transformed by his closeness to Jesus when Jesus was alive, transformed by seeing the risen and resurrected Jesus, and now living for the kingdom throughout all of his life, serving the church, witnessing, being flogged, thrown in jail, and going through all manner of things. And so at the end of his life, he's now writing this book, John, that we're about to study. And it's interesting that in the book, he refers to himself no longer the son of thunder, but as the disciple who Jesus loved. Every time you see that, that's a sign that he's talking about himself. Now you may ask, well, is that just more bravado, sort of thunder? I don't know what Jesus loved, you know. Uh, but, but scholars don't think so. They think it was actually an attempt to be more anonymous, to not name himself and say, I did this or I did that, John did that, to just be a disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus did it. So it was actually his attempt to deflect the attention off of himself and toward the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Amen. that. I love that about this man. He is a son of thunder no more. He had received the love and power of Jesus within his very soul. 
and now was a masterful builder of the kingdom in Jesus' name. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So what we do know is that toward the end of his life, John wrote four books that um, are unparalleled in their, in their handling of love, the love of God, the Gospel of John, but also 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And he also wrote the book of Revelation yes. in his life from now on the Patmos, which maybe is where we get a little of that thunder coming out, because there's a little thunder in Revelation, uh, but, but, but tempered by the Holy Spirit. And um, the, it's a vision of the end times and what will come when Jesus takes his throne at the end of days. And so I want you to get here, because this whole survey of John, the power of God to transform the life. Yeah. There's no one beyond him. That you are not beyond him. You're not too this or too that. Not too son of thunder. Not too quiet. Not too loud. God can take any one of us and transform us to be used for his kingdom. And so God took this son of thunder, and he was transformed from a thunderous, self-absorbed, rough-around-the-edges man to a disciple who sacrificed and suffered for the faith who wrote powerfully the love of God, and also the glory and majesty of Jesus, the Son of God. So I hope you're excited to study the book of John, written by this amazing man, John. And I want to just give you just a little bit of the structure of how we're going to study this book. The book is actually split into uh, kind of two parts. People like to split it into two parts. I don't know if he split it into two parts, but we as commentators split it into two parts because it seems to be that the first half of the book, the first 12 chapters of John, are what we like to call the book of signs. He's talking about signs of Jesus' um, divinity, basically. He's there the signs of miracles. So the first um, 12 chapters highlight the seven signs. Now, God, Jesus did lots of other signs and miracles in there, but he points out seven of them that he calls signs. And this is actually an example of that depth of theology that I'm talking about with John, because you could call something a miracle, and you go, ooh, it's a miracle, God did something great, that's great. But if you call something a sign, you just got to do something with that. It's, God did a sign, he did a miracle, but it was a sign of who he was. It's, both, it's meant to bring us faith when we see the miracles that Jesus did. So he calls them signs. Uh, through the book. So that's the first 12 chapters, the book of signs. They cover most of Jesus' ministry, three plus years of his ministry on earth. And they're almost all public proclamations, things that he did out in the public. Then the second half of the book, a full nine chapters, 13 to 21, are called the book of glory. And as I mentioned before, they cover only three days. Just the last three days of Jesus' life, only nine chapters, more than any other gospel, because these are critical to John. They're what it's all about those last three days. They are mostly, those chapters, private instruction uh, and prayers for his disciples, mostly, um, and then it, of course, culminates in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's how we're going to study it. Now, when I was first putting this study together, I thought we were going to get all of John done by Christmas. And uh, what I realized, I started laying it out, 21 verse, 21 chapters, so I was going to have to double up chapters each week, maybe three chapters a week, just race through it. And I just felt the Holy Spirit say, slow down. Slow down. Slow down. Let's just, let's just walk. I want, I just had such a sense that God wants us to walk through chapter by chapter what John is revealing to us. Amen. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do the book of signs between now in Christmas. So we're going to take it through till the beginning of Advent. We'll do those first 13 chapters, first 12 chapters, 
And then um, we're going to take a little break for Christmas. We'll do Advent, we'll kind of break out of John for a little bit, take a totally different tack, probably the more Old Testament. Uh, and then we will do Christmas and New Year's, and then we're going to start back up with the Book of Glory in January. And we'll take the Book of Glory all the way till the end of February when Lent starts. And I was just so excited when I laid it all out and saw where it ended. And I was like, thank you, Jesus, because what it means is that we're going to get to the end of John right when Lent starts. And we're supposed to be focusing ourselves on prayer and drawing close to Jesus. Yes. And so we'll have all this wonderful background of John right as we're going into the season. So I'm excited about that. I hope that out just perfectly. Um, and again, as always, the small groups will be talking about John, uh, through, certainly through the fall. Some small groups may continue and talk through the February, mid-February as well. So you can talk about that in your small groups. But if you haven't signed up for a small group, get out there. There's only two small groups left, so get on your name. Two are already full. Um, but we're excited to have people talking about the book of John. If it helps you, they're going to talk about what I'm talking about. they got no choice because I'm providing the materials. So, so um, well, they have a choice. They can actually do whatever they want. I wouldn't know. But it's all right. But you might want to think about taking notes maybe during some of the sermons. If some things really speak to you, just jot it down because you'll bring, you can bring that to the small group and that will really enrich um, your time together. So let's bring this to a close. What is the book of John about? Why did he write it? So that we would believe. So that we would have faith. So we would deepen in our faith. And we wouldn't doubt. And you know, people sometimes like to ask the question, what would you do if I gave you a million dollars? And it's fun to think out of the box, right? Oh, I'd you know, go on trips, I'd buy a car, I'd buy my mother a house. That's always a nice thing to do. To get a million dollars, buy another house. Um, you know, what would you do if you had a million dollars? I want to ask you a different kind of question for you to think out of the What would you do if you just completely believed in everything Jesus said? What would your life be like? I want you to think out of the box for a minute. If you just didn't doubt, if you just good. knew it was true, you knew he loved you all the time, every day, every way, what would that be like? How would your life proceed? How would your life be different from what it is today? And there might be a few of you who say, actually, my life is pretty much like it is now. You have the gift of faith. That's what that means. You have a spiritual gift of faith. And you don't doubt. You just believe. And you live according to that every day. And if you're like that, teach us. Teach the rest of us. But I suspect many of you think, you know, I don't know what my, how my life would be different. Would you have less fear about finances, about your health, about your children, about your spouse? Would you maybe step out more in your gifts? Be more bold about your faith? Because you don't have to worry, because you just know. You know that you know that you know. It's me. He's here. He's taking me home. I can just be bold. Use whatever he's given me. Would you care for people more? See them a little bit more through his eyes and have more compassion? Be maybe a little less self-absorbed and a little more other-centered, because that's man, he's real and he's right here, and that's how he was. I want to be just like that. Maybe you wouldn't fear death at all. Yeah. Just it wouldn't be a fear. Whenever it comes over its time, it's fine. Would you leave what you're doing? Maybe and follow God in ministry. Maybe some of you are called to ministry. You're always like, oh, I can't do that. I gotta work. I gotta have a job. Maybe you'd be like, hey, he's calling me. Go. Would you take different kinds of risks for Jesus? What risks would you take? Be truly, truly believed.
take the example of John, who started out as a sun thunder, brass and gold and, and, and without much restraint. And yet God saw him and loved him and said, I know this man and he's got something that I know I can work with. He's got some faith and I'm going to build up that faith and I'm going to use him for my kingdom powerfully. Yes, Lord, he can do the same thing for you and me. But it all starts with faith, right? It starts with just believing, yeah. trusting him and everything. And so I want us to start to pray some big, bold prayers as we go into this study. That we would begin to have a faith that's rock solid. Rock solid. Yeah. And then as we go into ministry time right now, you know, we always have something that we call ministry time at the end of a video service. And sometimes it means you come up and get prayed for. Sometimes it means you, you, you receive something in your seat. Sometimes it means that you're simply responding to the word. I want, us, I want us to have a ministry time now where we are responding to him. And maybe you'll want to come forward to kneel at the altar. But I want us to pray a big, bold prayer today. So I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes. Maybe that's take and come back up. And I want us to just ask the Lord this question. How can I live, Lord? How would I live if I, if I really truly believed in you in everything? What is it that's holding me back from giving Jesus 100%? And if there's a seed of doubt, a, deed of, a, a seed of, of unworthiness feeling, a seed of shame or fear, that we could lay that at Jesus' feet. Say, I don't want to operate according to that. I'm, I'm going to operate according to faith. To trust in and believe in Jesus. So let's just take a moment. Wish or want to have. We trust you with all that. 